0: Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. If you would open your Bibles to 1 John 4. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screens to my right and to my left. <clears throat> we hear John say, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Amen? Amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. When I go to the supermarket uh, today, uh, my greatest fear is spending too much on too few items. Just going up. How much should an egg cost? I don't know. I'm not worried that I'm gonna go into a supermarket and I'm gonna buy something and it's actually gonna turn out to be not food, but poison and will kill me. I'm not concerned about that. I know that many of you, as as we've uh, kind of had more nuanced and complex diets, have begun to believe that lots of things will kill you. Um, And and that can be true. And there's certainly things that if all I ever ate was ice cream, that would eventually get me. Like, might take a while, but it will get me. But I'm not afraid of going in, looking at the various brands of bread and thinking, one of these is not bread, it's poison, I better not pick that one. There's all these things in place that could prevent that from ever happening. I don't know what government agencies or scientific institutions or universities or whatever are helping to ensure someone can't take rat poison, market it as cornflakes, and kill people. You guys still with me? All right, so I don't feel like the supermarket is dangerous, and that extension for most people in our culture Uh, or that, that idea, extends to the marketplace of theological ideas. That is, I can go out, I can hear various opinions about God, about Jesus, about humankind, about sin, about life after death, and as if it were a supermarket, I can decide which ones best fit me, which ones make the most sense, which ones help me live my life in the best way possible. And so we don't think of that marketplace, at least outside these walls as a dangerous place, but unlike the supermarket, it is in fact a very dangerous market. That there are incorrect beliefs that are not just intellectually wrong, they are spiritually dangerous. Do you know that you can believe things about God that put your soul in danger? Do you know that? And here's the thing. Unlike my example in the supermarket where there's a bunch of brands of cereal or bread and one of them's poison, it's the other way around. In the marketplace of theological ideas, Almost everything is dangerous, except for a set of beliefs about God, about His Son, about humankind, about sin, about salvation, about life after death. This is what this passage is about. It's it's a serious issue. John is concerned about people believing things that are spiritually dangerous for them. He begins in verse 1, beloved, do not believe Every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. You may remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Mike preached, uh, and the title of his sermon was Do Not Love. Do you remember that? doesn't sound like a very Christian title. Do not love. <laughs> what are you supposed to not love? The world. You might consider this passage to me emphasizing to Christians, do not believe. Should Christians believe things? Should they believe everything? Christians should exercise healthy caution. They should consider the words of the Bible when they hear theological ideas. John says, test every spirit. Test these spirits. Do not believe every spirit. When we read this passage, we might immediately think of like, are we trying to like read someone's like vibe or energy, whether they're a cool guy or not a cool guy? Like, are their ideas gonna be good based upon how we feel about that person? It's not like a subjective feeling. Um, John and us, we believe that there's a material world that we can see and interact with and touch and hear, and then there's an immaterial world that's behind that material world of forces and agents that we cannot see. And there are people who are empowered by the Spirit of God to say true things about God, and there are people who are empowered by spirits that are not of God, as John says here, that ultimately result in them saying things that are not true about God, whether they know it or not, and therefore they become false prophets or false teachers. The Bible's really concerned about people telling us lies about God. It's really concerned with that. It's a repeated theme over and over and over again where we're told to be on guard. We're told to be careful, to watch out for untruths or falsehoods about God. You can go all the way back to the time of Moses, and in the book of Deuteronomy, he's preaching to the, the second generation before they enter into the promised land. He says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Moses is saying, a guy can come up, He can wonder you in some way, amaze you in some way, maybe do some sort of miracle or tell you about something that's going to happen, and that comes to pass. But if that same person then says, go after other gods, doesn't matter what he achieved, don't listen to him. Paul has a similar concern. He says this to the church at Corinth, For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise himself as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Moses is concerned. Paul is concerned. John is concerned. Peter. Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In biblical times, people were really concerned about false prophets. They were concerned about being told falsehoods and untruths about God. The writers of the Bible view these figures as really dangerous... Interestingly, the Bible does not give you a lot of advice about how to avoid physical harm. It gives you lots of advice about how to avoid spiritual harm. It is concerned with your eternal destiny and what you believe about God. And so it is constantly warning us there are false teachers out there. They're not telling you the truth. They're lying to you and they're dangerous. I fear that the number of false teachers has not gotten smaller. It's gotten larger. I fear that false teachers have accrued far larger audiences than they might have had in the first century because of video and social media and Instagram and all that stuff. I fear that false teachers have had a deeper connection and access to individuals probably through social media. It's hard. I get people ask me all the time, is this person a false teacher or a good teacher? And sometimes that's a lot of work. (laughs) I gotta figure out what's going on. People go on Google. By the way, you know um, what doctors probably hate? they probably hate WebMD. Probably not fans of it. You print out your symptoms, you bring it to your doctor, you argue with your doctor, your doctor says, please stop going on WebMD. Google is not a saved believer. (laughs) It's not baptized into a church, does not have a seminary degree. Please don't go to YouTube seminary. You have access to the word of God right here faithful men, many here, that can work through various sections of Scripture. I think the Internet mostly confuses people. Not all the time. I think there's good stuff too, but it mostly confuses people. You can feel it. We live in like this whirlwind of of like insecurity uh, about knowledge of God, what is true about God, what isn't true about God. I have various inputs from various places. It can be difficult. John is concerned about his congregation. Some people who are in that congregation who probably worshipped alongside the people that John is writing to. They've gone out. They begin to teach falsehoods, dangerous falsehoods. And so they've left, and there's difficulty, and there's conflict, and John is trying to help this congregation prepare for the storm of false teachers that will repeatedly assault the church. He's helping us even now, today, in a world which there are many false teachers that tell us untruths about God that are dangerous. So firstly, John wants us to know God's Son. We can read verses 1 through 3 again. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh... Is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The ultimate litmus test, the ultimate way you can determine whether someone is a true or false teacher, the basic place to start is to ask the question: what do these people or this person teach about Jesus Christ? Jesus is the center of the Christian faith, he is the object Of our worship. He's the most important figure in human history, so what someone says about Jesus is really, really important. Historically, probably what's happened is the group of people who have left the church that John is specifically talking about have come to believe that Jesus either did not have a body, that he was just a ghostly figure, or he was just a regular guy that was possessed by the spirit of the Christ and then abandoned by the spirit of the Christ before the crucifixion or during the crucifixion. So John says, here's what you do. You ask, do they confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? If they don't confess that, don't listen to them. Sounds odd. It's not the same thing as asking, does Jesus have a body? It's more than that. It's a packed statement. Just these few words have a lot of theological content. They're rich. You could preach a sermon, I think, just on this little confession. It includes a lot. The first thing I think this confession includes for us is the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God. Do you believe that? Yes. Good. It's important that you believe that. That Jesus is, in fact, God. He says, "Has Jesus come in the flesh? Come from where?" is the question. <laughs> from where did Jesus come? From heaven, from the location uh, where God is. Jesus was not just a teacher. He was not just a moral example. He was not just a powerful miracle worker. He was not just a great debater. He was all those things. But the testimony of the New Testament is more than all of that. Jesus was not just a good person. He was not just a divine figure. He was the one God. That is a significant claim. John's already communicated this to us in his gospel. You go back to the beginning of John's gospel... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We can go to verse 15, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is a wild claim. Jesus Christ... Whom, by the way, John knew is the creator of the universe. Not a lot of time has passed. It'd be like me telling you someone I knew in the 80s made the universe. I want you to see the significance of this claim. And it's not just John. Other figures writing even earlier than John say similar things. Paul in Philippians. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Big claim. Colossians, a wonderful passage. In verse 15, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, look, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Big claims about Jesus. Really big claims about Jesus. Not just a good teacher, not just a good moral example, not just one figure in the pantheon of religious leaders. Christians believe that Jesus is God himself, the agent of creation. That he was, in fact, the one that spoke the world into existence. Not a God, the God, Yahweh, return to his people. This is a big claim. Together with this claim, confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is that Jesus, in fact, had a body. I think sometimes we could even forget this today. Two of the passages that I read already say that, that ...that the word became flesh or that Jesus was born in the likeness of man. The first claim is that Jesus is God. The second claim is that Jesus is a human. The contemporary mistake that John is dealing with is people believe probably that Jesus was in some way God... ...but they were skeptical of the idea of Jesus actually having a body. You can imagine how frustrating that is to John who knew Jesus... ...who shook Jesus' hand, who hugged Jesus, who walked around, who ate with Jesus went on hikes with Jesus, saw him preach and teach and perform miracles, and saw him get crucified and saw that he was raised from the dead, was there when Thomas touched the wounds of Jesus. And now these, like, honestly, just young, dumb theological upstarts. As John's, in his aging years, begin to say, actually, Jesus didn't have a body. And John's like, he did. I was there. I saw the body. This is how he opens his letter. He's like, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was ma- manifest to us. You can imagine how frustrated John is. Someone's like, yeah, uh, your grandpa was just a ghost. And you're like, I knew him. That's insane. These two claims together are important. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was not half God and half man. He was not a man possessed by a divine spirit. He was 100% God, 100% man. In the person of Jesus, when you see the human Jesus, you are also seeing the entirety of God, the fullness of God in human form, the God-man. There's a reason this is important. We have to get Jesus' identity correct to get his mission right. To understand what he has come to do. Identity leads to mission. So much of Mark's gospel, for example, is this question that gets asked over and over and over again by the disciples and all kinds of people around Jesus. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And Jesus kind of displays who he is through his actions and finally they get it. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. And then he's like, now my mission is to go and die on a cross. Jesus the Christ, one anointed, one appointed, set apart for a task. And this task is to bring salvation, redemption, and rescue to his people. This is a great predicament of of humankind, that we're actually all in need of rescue. You may know this story. Um, Maybe you are a visitor today, and you didn't want to raise your hand. It's okay. Maybe you've been here for a while, and you, you don't fully understand what the good news of Christianity actually is, but it begins all the way back at the beginning, When the first humans rebelled against God, they are deceived by a false teacher, the serpent, who tells them they can be like God. They eat the fruit they were commanded not to eat, they disobey God. And when they do that, they become rebels and enemies of God. And death and sin and condemnation enter the world. And then everyone who's born of these parents, includes everyone on earth, there's no one outside the line of Adam, except one all of these began as enemies of God. Guilty, actually guilty. I used to spend a lot of time with people trying to convince them that human beings were evil. I don't really think I need to do that. I think if you really think about your own heart, you know what it's predisposed towards. Human beings in a doomed position, guilty before God, judgment is meant to be poured out on sinners. We actually do like justice. We want those who commit great evil to pay for that evil. So God in his kindness takes on human form, as we read in Philippians, as we read in John and elsewhere. Takes on human form. He lives a perfectly righteous life that we could not live, unable to live. He dies a death on the cross in our place. And so this great transaction happens, this marvelous transaction. The wrath of God is poured out on God the Son, on Jesus. Jesus had no sin to pay for, and so he grants to us his righteousness, and he takes on our sin. We call this a substitutionary atonement. He died in our place, so that all who call the name of Jesus are granted as a gift his righteousness. So at the end, when you are before God, and you will be, You can point to Jesus' righteousness, be declared innocent, and rescued from the judgment that you deserve. This is only possible, this is only possible if these other two claims that John and others make about Jesus are true. Only a human can pay for human sin, fully human. Only God could truly bear the wrath of God, fully God. He needs to be both. This is brought together in the letter to the Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus was both God and man. God the Son becomes man so that he could pay for human sin and service as a propitiation. One who exhausts the wrath of God. So false teachers, what they often do is they rob Jesus Christ of some crucial, important element. They take away one important feature of Jesus, true quality of Jesus, such that he can no longer serve as a redeemer, as a savior. The earliest opponents of of John here, they're saying Jesus didn't have a body. He wasn't really human. John would say, if you're not a human, you can't pay for human sin. It's the problem with Islam. Not whatever other thing that you don't like about Islam. The problem with Islam is that it says that Jesus was only a human. That he was not killed, nor was he crucified. He could not bear the wrath of God because he was a human like everyone else. It's the problem with modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. Not that they annoy you by knocking on your door. I understand it's annoying. It's annoying. You have an opportunity when they do that. <laughs> it's because they believe that Jesus was the first created uh, being of God, that he is not God himself, that he is a sub-agent to God. It's the problem with Mormons. They don't believe that Jesus is God in a unique way. He's on the same continuum as everyone else between humanity and divinity. It's the problem with, like, modern progressive Christianity that says Jesus is a nice guy whom we're going to follow when we like what he says, but he's certainly not a propitiation because human beings are not fundamentally evil. It's so important that we get Jesus right. It is crucially central to, to the fidelity of Christianity. It is not something that we can hedge on It's eternally significant for each of us. If you're here today, and you've known Jesus as teacher, as moral example, as philosopher, but you have not yet known Jesus as Savior, as Redeemer, as atoning sacrifice, you right now are not safe from the wrath of God. Right now where you sit, you can be. It is offered freely to you. Today is the day of salvation. And it can be for you. John desires that this church know God's son and also that they trust God's victory. I'll just wait till all the flipping ends. (laughs) John 4, four 1 John 4.4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There's this moment where John almost pauses to offer assurance in the middle of kind of an intense section where he reminds them they've already been victorious and that they have remained and not gone off with the false teachers. They're reminded that the one who is in them is greater than the one who is in the world. You see, Christians, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. That This is not our greatest and, and final hope. It is not our greatest and final destination, that at some point Jesus will return. Heaven and earth will be remade, and, and that's where we're headed. So because of that, When we're choosing between the way of Jesus and the way of the world, and we choose the way of Jesus, we will experience rejection. Have you ever experienced rejection? Oh, nobody. Wild. (laughs) Let's talk afterwards. I'll reject you in some way so you can (laughs) feel it. We should expect that those who follow a rejected Lord Lord will themselves experience rejection. In fact, rejection is the pattern of Christian life. Now, what I don't mean is that you will be rejected in every way, at every time, by every person. I mean, when you consistently choose to follow Jesus as Lord, and you abandon the cultural and public consensus that surrounds you, in many ways, you will experience rejection. I mean, like, The New Testament, it tells us this. John writes this at the beginning. He says about Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Later, Jesus himself says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world. The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I think sometimes we assume that being a faithful disciple of Jesus can easily and naturally coexist with the approval and applause of the world. I think sometimes it can. Sometimes things will align in a particular way. That something about Christianity will be considered by culture at that time to be admirable. And there'll be some applause and there'll be some approval, but it'll be temporary. That is not the norm. The norm is that you will experience rejection when you choose the way of Jesus over the way of the world. That's why John's encouraging him. He's saying to them, you've already had victory. In the end, God will have victory. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in them. Like pastorally, I want you to know if you have not already held on to this truth that there is a greater hope for you in the end, you should know that at some point in your life, if you have not already, you will need to choose the way of Jesus over the way of the world. It's a guarantee. Maybe you are single and you're young and the world's telling you to live your life in a certain way. It's saying that the sexual ethic of Christianity is rigid and ridiculous and pre-modern. It's telling you that you should express yourself and try new things. It's telling you to party on the weekends. But you choose the way of Jesus. You choose to be considered a prude and a weirdo. And when you do that, you experience rejection. Maybe you are in a difficult marriage. I'm sure nobody here, right? Maybe some of you are in really difficult marriages. Maybe some of you are really struggling. The world says to you, if you're not happy... You just leave. If you're not happy, leave. Your own happiness is the most important thing. Leave. Express yourself. Be freed from the slavery of marriage. What's the point of marriage if you're not happy? Choose the way of Jesus. Humble yourself. Be patient. Trust in the Lord to restore your marriage. And when you do that, You will be rejected by the world that says to you, just follow your heart. Maybe you are one more report to HR about talking about Jesus at work from being in some serious trouble. Maybe you've got a relationship with someone who does not yet know Jesus and you're trying to figure out how much you constrain it when you tell them about Jesus, but you care about that person's soul. Maybe you're at university. You're in your first few years. Some of you guys certainly are. You're back for the summer. Get some some rest. And you're told that the views that you grew up with are ridiculous. They don't make any sense. They're not historically verifiable. They're philosophically weak that actually you can't be smart and be a Christian at the same time. By the way, if that is you, come and talk to me, because none of that's true. (laughs) There's a whole world of ideas that you could buy into, and you'll be accepted by the other university people. Choose the way of Jesus. Remain faithful to the teachings you were brought up with. I assure you, whatever you lose in rejection is nothing compared to what you receive in faithfulness. Nothing. Jesus is worth it, Hope Chapel. Jesus is worth it. We're to know God's Son, to trust God's victory, and lastly, uh, treasure God's truth. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 again. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We read this, it sounds strange. John is saying, here's how you know that you know God. You listen to me. And you're like, ooh, it sounds kind of weird. It's not really what John means. He's not acting like a cult leader here. He uses the word us, if you'll notice. listens to us. And basically every commentary on this passage believes that what John is talking about is the early apostolic witness eyewitnesses to Jesus. I mean, John knew Jesus, and other people who were alive at the time knew Jesus. They wrote things down about Jesus. There is a contrast between the apostles who saw Jesus, heard his teachings, experienced his death, witnessed his resurrection, heard even Jesus talk about those things after he was raised from the dead, and they're passing that information on to a new generation or to new places. They're not innovators. They're not creators. They're relayers. Then there are the imposters, who are innovators, they're creators, they're, they're making up some new stuff. They're not eyewitnesses. What's important is not the relayer of the truth, but the truth itself. You can see this um, when Paul writes to the Galatians, his spiciest letter. <laughs> he's not super happy with these guys. This is how he opens, by the way. Normally he's like, you know, dear such and such, fantastic, I love you so much, I'm thankful for you. He's like, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now look at this. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul's saying, listen, I preach the gospel to you, and then I'm going to go away. And if, he came, if I came back a few years later, it's like, I've got a new gospel. You should run me out of town. Don't let me get away with that. It is not the messenger. It's the message. The credentials to serve as a gospel preacher that's true and honorable is not a seminary degree or anything like that. It is, do you actually say the truth? The truth itself is the credential. For us, this truth is like apostolic witness. It's it's called inscripturated. It's it's found in scripture. The Bible, and, and when it comes to apostolic witness, specifically the New Testament, is where we find the unchanging truth of God. That's where we go. And the word of God is a marvelous gift to his people for a million reasons. I'm going to give you a few. If you don't have a Bible, we'll get you one. We'll put it on Pastor Mike's tab. Don't worry about it. First, the word of God produces the people of God. There was never any people of God before there was a word of God. And the only way to become a person of God is to experience God's word. It cannot happen any other way. I have this story I'll never forget. When I was in my studies, there was a fellow student. She was from uh, Paris and had basically grown up her entire life uh, in an unbelieving, a-religious, like, soft, atheistic family didn't know anything about the Bible, didn't know anything about the New Testament or the Old Testament, didn't really know who Jesus was. Churches were just beautiful abandoned buildings that were nightclubs at night because that's the way it is in Europe. One day she reads the Old Testament. She gets a copy of of a French Old Testament. I don't know how it's just the Old Testament. She only has that. She reads it and she comes to believe that the God of the Old Testament is the one true God. Just on her own. But then she despairs. She's like, but how? How? Could I become a member of God's people? I'm not Jewish. She's telling me for months. She's despairing. She believes that God is real, that God is true, that the God of the Old Testament is the one true God, but she doesn't know what to do with that information. She tells one of her friends, and her friend's like, you know, I think there's a sequel. (laughs) (laughs) So she gets a New Testament, and she reads it, and in it, she meets the real Jesus. And she comes to faith. She repents of her sins, becomes a member of God's people. God's Word did that. No one, like, she didn't, like, come across someone, like, Steve Sanchez didn't find her and ask her those questions. Like, <laughs> she, she encounters God in his word, and God's word produces a new member of God's people. That's what God's word does. God's word protects us from bold lies. Lies aren't always bold. But they're almost never called lies. No one says, I've got a great lie, I want you to believe. Even Jesus himself. Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's being tempted by the devil himself. We read Jesus himself use scripture. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Our defense in the face of even bold demonic lies is Scripture itself. Scripture is also a safeguard against churches drifting theologically in dangerous directions. It is a safeguard against us just being the sort of people who live our religious lives on the ups and downs of the visions and dreams of charismatic leaders. For as long as I can remember, Teachings here begin in this way. Please open your Bibles. For as long as I can remember, that's how it begins. We open our Bibles and we look in our Bibles. I don't recall any time that anyone who's preached here has ever said, close your Bibles. We're not going to need them today. I had a dream last night where God told me some stuff that I'm going to tell you about. You just got to trust me. May that never be the case. The Bible is also a means of revival for for churches that have gone sideways. You recall Zach praying for churches who have drifted, who have become, I think, corrupted with bad theological ideas, who have succumbed to the pressures of public consensus, who have altered the Word of God in various ways because they want their beliefs to better match the beliefs of those people around them. I've been in a lot of these churches. You know what's wild about these churches? They still give out Bibles. So so they they, they have beliefs that are not biblical. They're not true. The Bible doesn't teach these things. And they still hand Bibles to the people in these churches. I don't know why. They're sort of correcting themselves. (laughs) So then people open these Bibles up and they begin to read them. And they're like, oh, this is not what I've been learning at church. And so God speaks for himself in those contexts. And the Word of God becomes a means of revival for churches that were seemingly so lost. I think there's lots of things like apologetics courses and philosophy courses that can well prepare you to have um, helpful dialogue with people with whom you disagree, who are going to tell you things that are not true about the Bible. It is far more important that you know your Bible than it is that you know their beliefs. That, that is your final defense to know God's word. He speaks to you through the Bible. So as as John opens, we can close. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. May we be a church that remains faithful to what the Bible teaches. Amen? Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the marvelous gift of your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who's died in our place. Pray that you continue to assure us and comfort our hearts as we live in between times. Pray that you would continue to encourage us and grow us as a church. We pray all these things in the great name of your Son Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel dot org